What's up, Knowledgers? This is Danny. What's up, guys? This is Chris. And y'all are listening to Serial Knowledge. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another week of Serial Knowledge. Chris, how are you doing? I am hanging in there. How are you doing? I'm doing absolutely average. Average. <laughs> that I'm sure all of our knowledgers were like, "Oh, he's doing great," nope. and you threw him a curveball. Yep, I'm doing. I'm doing all right. I had a long week. That's all. I'm just tired. Yeah, but same. not too tired to do this because we love everybody who listens. Yeah, we do. We love absolutely, you guys. Absolutely. Also, this is serial knowledge in the morning, so we both uh, probably sound a little tired, but... We both sound like shit. Nah, we'll be fine. Are you sure? We'll be fine. They love us anyway. They do. (laughs) So, guys, we told you we were going to be in California again after OJ. Yeah, the golden state. Yes, we we covered OJ. Chris covered OJ. Did a great job. Three, Three episodes. I mean, wow. I mean, that was a lot of information. I'm still kind of reeling from that. Yeah, that was a ton. And uh, but now we're gonna like take it to a whole other place, but like still staying in California, like we were saying last time. All right, guys, did you get your guesses in? I got my guess in, and I think I was right. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, because I told you who it was. But well, I mean, I still <laughs> like to guess from time yeah. to time. So today we are going to be covering Rodney Alcala. And bitch, please, yeah. For those of you who don't know his name by his name, that is the dating game killer. And guys, I was actually thinking about this last night because I watched a short documentary. I'm not short. It was like a 45-minute documentary. Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of funny that he's called the dating game killer, but he's that's not what he's technically known for. I Yeah. A lot of people have said, well, that name throws me off. And I'm like, it would throw a lot of people off if they're like, dang, game killer. And Right. Yeah. And he's called that because, he spoiler alert, he appeared on a dating game, like, that you can probably put two and two together with a nickname like that. But yeah. he didn't ever kill anyone on the dating no. game or from the <laughs> dating game or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, today we're going to be covering Rodney Alcala and it's my turn finally after Woo-hoo! three, not, not that I'm mad about three weeks of Chris, but I'm just saying I miss talking. <laughs> I miss kind of just being able to sit here and just listen. Yeah, just commentate. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just get right into it. Let's do it. So Alcala was born named Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bacor. That's so French. Very, yeah, very French name. But he was born in San Antonio, Texas. We <laughs> <That is>, we. Oui, <laughs> oui. Yeah. Uh, he was born in San Antonio, Texas on August 23rd, 1943 to his father, Raul Alcala Bacor, and his mother, Ana Maria Gutierrez. Ooh. In 1951, the family moved to Mexico, but after his father abandoned his family in 1954, Rodney moved with his two sisters, his one brother, and his mom to Los Angeles, California. Abandonment issues? Yeah, definitely. That plays into it for sure. Oh, definitely. So a few years after moving to Los Angeles, Rodney was 17 years old and he joined the military. He served for three years as a clerk in the military. And then one day in 1964, Alcala experienced what everyone described as a nervous breakdown. After this breakdown, Alcala was evaluated by a military psychiatrist and ended up being diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Um, although we end up later learning that this is not the only type of mental disorder that Alcala would be diagnosed with. He is also said to have borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, as well as showing signs of sexual sadism and psychopathy. Wow! He is the jackpot of serial killers, guys! Yeah, he's got a lot going on up in that dome of his. I mean, I... Actually, you know, he's still alive. I want to, yes. like, I think he may try and, like, track down his inmate number and see. Yeah, uh, he's in San Quentin prison. Sweet. Uh, so we can go track him down, but I don't want to get too ahead of myself because oh, okay. I want to actually tell you guys about this guy before I'm telling you where he's at. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but those other disorders, the narcissistic, borderline personality, sexual sadism, and um, psychopathy, that wasn't all discovered until later in his life. So when he was only uh, 21 in the military, he was diagnosed with his uh, antisocial personality disorder. And because of that, he was actually medically discharged from the military. That makes sense. Right. It's just antisocial is kind of an interesting mental disability to get you um, discharged from the military. 
I mean, like I understand you have to have rapport and like camaraderie with your other soldiers and stuff like that, but I feel like antisocial is just kind of an interesting one to be discharged for. Right. I mean, why are you going to discharge somebody for being antisocial? I right. Mean, like borderline personality disorder. Oh yeah. I can get sexual sadism. Absolutely. Oh hell up, yeah. But like, yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that antisocial disorder caused him to be discharged from the military i wonder but. if that's what rodney would say it got him discharged <laughs> i mean that is what got him discharged, oh i know but, but he, i've heard a lot i had uh a, i knew a guy in college that uh you know totally falsified why he got discharged from the army like he didn't want oh, anyone yeah. knowing the real reason and right so i, mean, I just I know, have to wonder yeah i know a guy who was a medic in the military and he was discharged because of alcoholism but he won't tell most people that he he tells most people it was just like a a medical thing and got discharged for it so right who knows yeah who knows what rodney would actually say about it after being discharged alcala enrolled in classes at the ucla school of fine arts he went on to earn his bachelor degree of fine arts in 1968 the same year that Alcala graduated, he moved to New York and enrolled at NYU under the alias John Berger. And he even attended classes with Roman Polanski, which he's actually a well-known director, producer, writer, and actor. Really? Yes, but don't be too impressed by Polanski because he's actually also a giant piece of shit. He fled the U.S. in 1978 while he was awaiting his sentencing for having unlawful intercourse with a minor. Yeah, it just took you way up and then way back down. Well, the only reason, I mean, we all know, I mean, I don't know how many of you guys know about Roman Polanski, but Roman Polanski was also uh, linked to Charles Manson because his wife was murdered by the Manson family. I did not know that. That yeah. was not in my findings. No, literally get this, Danny. Sharon Tate, the actress uh-huh. that was eight months pregnant. Was married to Roman Polanski. Oh, shit. Yeah, Yeah. she happened to be staying home because she was too far along in her pregnancy to travel with Roman to his film set. Damn, that's crazy. And so that's why she was at home and, you know, wrong place, wrong time. Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah. Yeah, but we're here to talk about Alcala, not Polanski, so maybe we'll get to him (laughs) another time. Um, (laughs) In September of 1968, the same year that Alcala graduated from UCLA, Second grader Tali Shapiro was walking to school along Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. A car pulled up beside her and the man driving asked her if she wanted a ride. Tali responded by saying that she doesn't talk to strangers and then the driver responded and said that he knew Tali's parents. And uh, brace yourself for this next part. In later interviews, Tali said about this encounter, quote, I really didn't want to get in the car, but I was raised to respect my elders. I didn't know to fear people. I mean, I've taught Land in the same thing. Yeah, it's um, just like, it's so heartbreaking knowing what happens next, which we'll right. get into. I don't want to spoil anything, but it's just like, that's so precious, like so innocent of this little girl. Like, I was told to respect my elders. So even though I didn't want to go with this man, I went with him because... That's what I was taught. Yeah. I mean, as a parent, we, as parents out there and... I'm sure your mom and my mom taught us all the same thing, not to talk to strangers yeah, at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I almost had an incident like this, similarly related to Talia. I was about seven years old, and these two guys, um, and this is what my stepdad told me. He said that, you know, I was outside. I don't know if I was taking trash out or something or playing, but two guys in a truck came, like, up to the house and... You know, we're asking me to come over because, you know, whatever. And my gullible ass went over there. <laughs> oh my my gullible ass went over there. Thank God my stepdad was watching out the window and he came outside with a bat. Good. I'm glad he did. And he was like, you need to get your ass back in the house. Yeah. So, so that that just shows you guys how easy it can be. Right. Um, and that's why I always tell my son that he's not allowed to talk to strangers. Yeah, absolutely. I don't care if they say they know mom and dad. Uh, you know all of mom and dad's friends. Yeah, there's not much of them, so. <laughs> no, there's not. <laughs> so, so, if someone sits there and goes, I'm your mom's friend, he's going to be like, no, you ain't. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I've never seen you before. <laughs> so, like, like you, when you were younger, Tali actually had someone looking out for her, so. 
Um, there was actually just like a, a random citizen nearby who saw this interaction between Tali and this man driving the car. And he found it suspicious. So when he saw Tali climb into the vehicle with the strange man, uh, he actually decided to follow them. He followed the car all the way back to the driver's apartment. And that's when he called the police and told them what they saw. Police arrived at the apartment that they now knew belonged to Rodney Alcala. When the police knocked on the door, Alcala refused to open it until eventually the officers threatened to kick it down. After hearing that threat, Alcala appeared in the window saying that he was in the shower. The officer then kicked in Alcala's door right as Alcala was beginning to escape out the back. But police entered the home and found Tali lying on the ground in the kitchen, severely injured. And unfortunately, Alcala was able to escape because the police were focused on reviving and helping Tali, which obviously we're grateful that she was taken care of. They did, yeah. Yeah, but the police had no idea how bad the man was that they just let slip through their grasp. Oh my gosh. And the thing is, guys, is that kind of like a lot of killers back in that day, they... Akala was very charming. He was. He was very charming. He was very good looking at the time. He's I mean, yeah. not anymore. Oh, He's dude, very I, rough looking now. No, I just saw a recent picture of him, and man, that that bro's got a stash going. I mean, it's just like yeah, yeah, it's crazy. He it's looks the a prison rough stash. Now. Yeah. <laughs> so after his near capture in apartment is when Alcala fled to New York and created his alias of John Berger. Uh, During the summer, while Rodney was not taking classes at NYU, he actually managed to get a job as a counselor at a New Hampshire arts camp for children. And I also found out that this was actually an all-girls camp. Oh, shit. It was all-girls? It was an all-girls art camp. Yeah. What the fuck? So he used a similar but slightly different alias at this job than what he used at NYU. So at NYU, he used John Berger, which was spelled B-E-R-G-E-R. And for his job at the camp, he used the same name, John Berger, but spelled the last name B-U-R-G-E-R. Oh, so like a burger. Yeah, like a cheeseburger. Okay. Um, So a few years later, in 1971, there was actually two campers who noticed Alcala's FBI wanted poster at a post office. And so when they noticed it and they recognized him from the camp, they told the camp directors. And Alcala was very soon after arrested and then extradited back to California. Uh, He ended up standing trial for the rape and attempted murder of Tali Shapiro. However... By the time they had finally gotten him back to California, Tali's family had moved to Mexico and refused to allow Tali to testify in court. And so without any testimony from the primary witness, prosecutors weren't actually able to convict Alcala of the rape and attempted murder and were forced to allow him to plead guilty to a lesser charge. I mean, I can understand why her parents wouldn't want her to come back and testify. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredibly traumatizing. I mean, even as a grown adult woman, like, man, woman, whoever, if you go through something like that, I've seen a lot of people, even as grown adults, say, I refuse to come back and testify. Yeah, it's too traumatizing. Like, having to relive that, like, just in general, but also having to relive that in public, in front of people, that's just so difficult. Like, I, I would feel bad asking someone to do that, but at the same time, like, doing that will put a terrible person behind bars so like i mean i i so see that and i think that like 99 percent of prosecutors feel that way yeah exactly but also tolly was eight years old when this happened to her right like it's that's horrifying to think i, I mean, just like i can't even imagine an eight-year-old going through something like that especially like were it to be my eight-year-old I oh just, if it were my eight-year-old i'd be like all oh, um no. 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 Yeah, no, that's too traumatizing to make them relive that. I mean, it's, now, it my eight-year-old is a lot more mature for his age than... Most eight-year-olds. Mo- I mean, Danny <laughs> has seen my eight-year-old and yeah. met him. I mean, he can be very mature. He can also act like an eight-year-old at times. Right, of course. He's eight. <laughs> but the thing is that if he sat there and made that decision of, you know, I want to do this... Yeah, it's then- still a hard decision to make. And obviously, this is years later. Like, I, I believe Tali was... 13 at this time maybe 12 when he was finally brought back okay but even still i mean that's just so young right that's still young and i feel like you know her parents were just looking out for her best decision you know best best interest interest. yeah Yeah, absolutely i so i i and to those witnesses out there that actually do come back and they're like oh yeah i'm gonna testify 
you know, bravo oh, on you. Yeah, they're so strong. Like, you can't at all blame Tali's p- family for not no. wanting her to testify. No, so. not at all. So, in 1974, only 34 months after Alcala was convicted, he was actually paroled. And this was possible because of something called the Indeterminate Sentencing Program. It was very popular at the time. This program allowed parole boards to release offenders as soon as they demonstrated evidence of, quote, rehabilitation. So usually it's up to a judge to grant a parole. But this uh, indeterminate sentencing program allowed the actual parole board to decide whether or not someone was granted parole or not. And they basically based it off of having evidence of rehabilitation. So basically all Rodney had to do was act like he had been like... Yeah. He just had to be charming like he always was anyway. Do you know how easy that is to fool a parole board? They're not going to... Yeah. I mean... Like, they aren't trained in the way that a judge is. Like, they haven't learned law and, like, behavior in the way that a judge has to understand. Like, obviously, I'm not trying to discredit a parole board. They have a very hard job. Oh, yes, they do. But still, like, leaving it up to them and them alone seems a little odd but i mean that's i guess it was a very popular program at the time and so i mean do you know if that program is still going or is it just back then that it was happening i actually don't know for sure um if it's still a program that is active in the court system but i would imagine that they if it is they've at least probably added some kind of tweak to it right i would imagine that they sit there and they're like okay well i would hope so at least i mean i would think that they would after a case like this i would hope that they would make some kind of a change to it i mean adding classes or like a certain number of therapy sessions or you have to do this 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 and this right instead of just showing evidence of rehabilitation like so (laughs) yeah so On October 13th, not even two months after Alcala was paroled, he approached Julie J., who was described as a small, undeveloped 13-year-old girl while she was waiting for her school bus in Huntington Beach, California. Alcala reportedly was very charming and actually convinced Julie to accept his offer for a ride to school, even though she was hesitant of him at first. They drove right past Julie's school, and she immediately asked multiple times to be let out of the car. Alcala said that he was just going to check out an apartment and that it wouldn't take long, but when Julie asked again to be let out, Alcala snapped at her and told her to be quiet. Julie became very frightened at this point. I would too. Yeah, I would be terrified. This random guy offered to give me a ride, and when I asked him to let me out because he didn't stop where I was supposed to be going, he's just like, shut up, bitch. Like, <laughs> Right? So Alcala finally came to a stop at some cliffs that overlooked the beach, and when he stopped, Julie tried to escape, but Alcala got around to her door and grabbed her arm. Uh, He walked her to a spot along the cliffs where he made her sit with him and forced her to smoke some weed. Anytime Julie tried to get up or leave, Alcala would grab her leg violently. He then wrapped his arm around her and started trying to make out with her. He then asked her if she liked boys and if she was passionate while, quote, loaded. What? Yeah. Just an absolute fucking... Sicko? Yeah. Actually, that was a perfect word to describe it. (laughs) So, thankfully, this nightmare for Julie ended when a park ranger arrested them both for drug use. Oh, thank God that park ranger. Yeah, seriously. Because Julie's... That could have been way worse for Julie. It could have been so, so much worse. Honestly, in my head, I almost imagine him, like, saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to throw you over the cliff or something like that. Yeah, he would probably. I mean, honestly, but he's a grown-ass man, and this is, like, a 13-year-old girl. Like, he could pretty easily force her to do quite a bit. Oh, I'm sure he could, but the threats of, you know. Yeah. So Alcala was tried, and he was actually only convicted of violating his parole because of smoking weed. There was no charges at all for kidnapping Julie. What? Yeah, because Julie even told the police that Alcala had kidnapped her, but they only charged him with marijuana use. Way to go, police department. Yeah, I don't know how. So Alcala was sentenced, and he actually served two years for this crime because he violated his parole. But again, in 1977, he was let out on parole because of the indeterminate sentencing program again. Oh, my God. I know. You would think. Yeah. Well, what's that? Like I told my mom, uh, what's it saying? 
fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Yeah, exactly. I'm just like, come on, so, guys. So, honestly, at this point, I'm going to say shame on the parole board. Yeah, absolutely. They've seen him before. Like, this is not long ago that this all happened. That Like, the the Tali stuff happened. But part of me wonders, is there, like, different parole people on the board? Or is it the same? I mean, I'm... I'm assuming it's like the same California parole board that all the information is sent to. Right, I just didn't know. Maybe they have a different one like per county or per municipality. I'm not sure. I don't know. But that would be the only reason I would see this happening once, him being put on parole, getting sentenced again, and then paroled again would be the fact that there was different people, but... Right, but, but it's Huntington have... Beach is in Southern California, oh, I know that. and that's where he lives. So, and like, that's where everything happened with Tolly. So, I'm assuming it was the same parole board. But I, I mean, you look at his file, and you're like, oh, you were already paroled once, asshole. Right, exactly. Like, why are we going to give you another chance? No. At least that's what I would think. I would too. <laughs> so, despite his rapidly growing criminal history and his official registration as a sex offender. In 1977, Alcala was hired by the Los Angeles Times to be a typesetter in the midst of their coverage of the Hillside Strangler murders. Oh, so he was writing up for the Hillside Stranglers. Yeah, he was writing for the LA Times during the coverage of the Hillside Strangler murders. Which also, there's another little tie-in with the Hillside Stranglers later that we'll get into that's kind of interesting that he wrote about them. I I would love to see an article that he wrote. I want to find one. Yeah, that'd be really fascinating. Uh, so also during this time, Alcala wanted to start getting his name out there as a photographer. So he convinced dozens of young women to do photo shoots with him for his portfolio. Most of these pictures remain unidentified. However, investigators fear that some of the women in the photographs may be some of Alcala's victims that haven't been discovered or haven't been tied to him yet. Um, I don't know if you saw this one. Um, what? One of the first ones that he took a picture of, her name was Christine or Christina. I yeah, it's Christine. I have information on okay. her later. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> I got. I I, I dove deep. I know you did because you were talking to me all yesterday about yeah, this. I try not to uh, stay in the shallow end too much. So, yes, Go to the I, deep end. I definitely found out about Christine and many many others. So, oh, so no. sad. Yeah, we will get into it, but I don't want to jump ahead. Okay. So in 1978, only a year after being hired for the LA Times, Alcala was actually accepted as a contestant on a TV show called The Dating Game. This is where we get into why he's known as The Dating Game Killer. Uh, Even though at this point, Alcala was already a convicted rapist and registered sex offender, um, he was still somehow accepted onto the show. So I don't understand that. I I really don't get it. I I really don't. (laughs) Um, and there's an interesting fact about this later, too. So I want to bring up the dating game again, but I'm going to leave it for now. Um, the host of the show, Jim Lang, introduced Alcala as a, quote, successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in a dark room at age 13, fully developed. Between takes, you might find him skydiving or motorcycling. When I first read that, I was like, what the fuck does that mean? Found him in a dark room at age 13, fully developed. But I think he was just trying to make a joke about like being a photographer. Like, oh, he was a fully developed because he was sitting in the dark room. Like he was born to be a photographer. But I thought it was a very weird thing for him to say. Didn't his dad abandon him? Yeah, before he was 13, too. <laughs> but like, I mean, the TV show host probably didn't know that. So he was just probably making I mean, a quick... I wonder if they filled it like... I suspect because they have to fill out questionnaires. Yeah, but I mean, like, do you think that one of the questions on the questionnaire is, are your parents still married? And like, <laughs> No, but, like, say that, you know, Rodney has to describe his hobbies and interests. He's not going to sit there and be like, oh, I'm a sex offender rapist who likes to... Right, but we also don't know if he liked to skydive or ride motorcycles, and they said that about Actually, him. he did like to ride motorcycles. That was one thing, and... A lot. I think a lot of the pictures that they found on Rodney's camera were of girls sitting on a motorcycle. Ah, gotcha. Um, skydiving, I don't know, but it. I would assume he filled out a questionnaire full of shit answers. Yeah, about I assume himself. he probably filled out a bunch of crazy shit on that questionnaire. <laughs> Um, so Alcala actually won the show and he was supposed to go on a date with the Bachelorette from the episode. Her name was Cheryl Bradshaw, but she refused to go out with him because she found him to be creepy. And uh, Jed Mills, who was an actor who was one of the other contestants and sat next to Alcala on stage, described him as a very strange guy with very bizarre opinions. 
uh, yeah, I mean, if you okay, I've watched his episode. Have you really? I have. Um, I mean, I I like game shows. I'm I'm yeah. not, not totally in like obsessed, but I'll sit down and watch a game show every once in a while. Yeah, for sure. But I figured since we were doing Rodney Alcala, I would sit down and watch the episode that he was on. Oh my god, dude! <laughs> like I agree with her that she, he. Gave off a real creepy He vibe. just, di- I mean, even his smile is creepy. He's like, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, oh. <laughs> Dude, yeah. Girl, if you could have seen the way he was laughing, you would have been like, no. Definitely not that guy. <laughs> Definitely not him. No, but it, I mean, he, he was very charming, but you could see the the level of creepiness that. Yeah, you could see the antisocial disorder in him. <laughs> Not the antisocial, but some other shit, yeah, you could see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, in February of 1979, Alcala had an encounter with 15-year-old Monique Hoyt. There's a lot of back and forth about this victim. Alcala picked her up while she was hitchhiking in Riverside County, and that we know for sure is true. Um, but it gets a little weird after that. I've seen a lot of reports that say that Monique actually willingly went back to Alcala's apartment with him and that she and Alcala had consensual sex that night. Um, it, even in a copy of one of the court documents during one of his trials stated that she went with him willingly. But um, I also found a handful of articles that say that she, he kidnapped Monique and raped her. So... I mean, what does Monique say? I don't know. She hasn't really like actually spoken about oh, okay. it. Yeah. And so, because she survived. Right. Um, but yeah, she hasn't really come out and said much. So mm-hmm. it's it's gone back and forth. But she's also 15 and consensual sex when you're 15. And we're talking about like a 20-something-year-old man. Not consensual. No, it's doesn't not. Doesn't matter. Nope. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Nope, she doesn't isn't. Matter, nope. So regardless of whether their first time having sex was consensual or not, the next morning Alcala drove her to the mountains and asked to take naked pictures of her and she let him. They then reportedly engaged in even more sexual activity, but after that Hoyt started to feel frightened and she started to scream and struggled to get away from Alcala. Alcala then proceeded to tie her up, shoved a t-shirt in her mouth to gag her and beat her unconscious. He then raped her and sodomized her. He later said about this attack that he never planned to be violent with Hoyt, but that he became, quote, incoherent and scared that the situation had gotten out of hand. Well, she started screaming. Yeah, it was getting out of hand because you're a disgusting piece of shit, and she noticed that and freaked out. So, when Hoyt woke up, Alcala just drove back to town and stopped to get gas like nothing was wrong. And so, Hoyt took this opportunity to escape, and she immediately told police about what had happened. And I'm assuming the police did nothing. No. Not really, honestly. Um, So, four months, I know. Four (laughs) months later, on June 20th, 1979... Around 2 p.m., 12-year-old Robin Samso and her friend Bridget Wilvert were hanging out at Huntington Beach when they were approached by a man that was offering to take their picture. They gave him permission, and he proceeded to take several pictures of the two girls, including a very specifically posed picture of Robin. An adult friend of Bridget's, Jackie Young, started to approach them, and when Alcala noticed this, he ran away. Robin and Bridget then went back to Bridget's apartment around 3.10 p.m. Robin was in a hurry to leave because she had a 4 p.m. ballet class that she was excited about because she was, quote, moving up to tow. Because Robin was in such a hurry, Bridget offered Robin her bike. Robin accepted and rode off. She was dressed in a bright red shirt, shorts, and tennis shoes. This was the last time anyone saw Robin alive. Dana Krapa, a member of a Forest Service spraying crew, admitted to almost getting in an accident with a very distinctive Datsun that was similar to Alcala's vehicle on the evening of June 21st. The Datsun was parked at marker 11, which was a pull-off. Dana said that there was a man standing near the vehicle and he was wearing jeans and a stained t-shirt. 
She later testified to seeing this same vehicle the day before at marker 11, which was the day that Robin had gone missing. And she stated that she saw a man and a girl with long blonde hair walking up the ravine away from the road. The man was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. The man seemed to be, quote, sort of forcefully steering the girl up the ravine. Dana didn't say that she could see the man touching the girl or whether or not he had a weapon, though. Dana admitted that she thought something might be wrong, but she went on her way anyway. Excuse me? Yeah, she just didn't do anything, didn't tell anyone. That almost reminds me of uh, back when we did the woodchip killer. Remember the... the, the, the yeah, the maintenance guy who the was doing the Yeah, he the just drove plow. back and forth by him and he was like, hey, what you doing? Yeah, yeah I mean, but he, he said something though, like yeah. he reported it. I know, so, but she... she but hey, just wait, just wait. You're gonna really hate Dana. We don't like Dana. Oh, we don't like Dana. No, we don't like Dana. Okay, tell me yes. why I don't like Dana. So Dana later testified that she was fairly certain that the man she saw on both occasions was Rodney Alcala. Um, she also stated that she went back to Marker Eleven on June 25th between 7 and 7:30 p.m. She walked up the ravine with a flashlight, and that's where she discovered the decomposing remains of Robin Samso. Part of her face was gone. Robin's naked body was badly cut. Her hands and feet were missing, and her head was severed from her neck. Her teeth were fractured in a manner that was consistent with blunt force trauma. Dana had even found a blue and yellow sneaker nearby that had Robin's name on it and what looked like shorts and a red t-shirt. Dana was so horrified by what she saw that she quickly left, and she told no one about what she found. I hate you, Dana. Yeah, we don't like Dana. I'm sorry. So you come upon the, rem- the remains of Robin. Of a murdered little 12-year-old. And you're going to sit there and be like, oh shit, I was so terrified that I just didn't do anything. Yeah, absolutely absurd. Okay, I- one, fuck you. You could have done something. Yeah, absolutely. And if you had, like, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but if you had done something, there might have been more evidence than had you not told anyone like you did but she could have stopped okay let's talk about the first thing okay she could have stopped and been like are you okay right yeah when she saw this random guy walking this little girl up a ravine and seemingly forcefully like she said herself, and and instead she's like oh huh that's weird i'm just gonna go about my day though bye and then she comes back and finds robin's body yeah and still says nothing Oh, girl. Yeah. I hope you lost your job. Yeah. So, four days later, the spraying crew um, that she worked for was working near the area of Robin's body, and another member of the crew, William Popke, happened upon a pile of bones. He thought it was just the remains of a deer, so he picked one of the bones up and tossed it to Dana, but Dana knew that it wasn't a deer. Despite this, Dana still said nothing to anyone. What the fuck is your problem, yeah, Dana? Still said nothing. Later that same night that her coworker William found that, Dana went back to the crime scene again. Robin's remains were skeletal at this point because of animals in the area yeah. actually like eating her and shit like that. Right. Um it wasn't until 3 days after that Uh, which was 12 days total after Robin went missing, that William discovered Robin's skull and notified the police. Because of the advanced state of decomposition, it was extremely difficult to determine the time of death or whether or not Robin had been sexually assaulted. Gee, why don't you ask Dana? Yeah, because there was definitely more than just skeletal remains when she found her. Um, I hope that Dana never has her own children. Yeah, no, I, I... Because if your children go missing... What are you going to do, not report them for 12 days? Right, exactly. And Well, she never did. It was her coworker who I Well, I understand that, but can you imagine knowing that she knows something? And just and, didn't say anything. Well, Robin's parents are out there scared to death. Absolutely. About their little girl missing. And right. And this person happens to come upon, one, her their child's still alive at some point. Right. Well, and not only her parents, but actually the ballet class she was supposed to be going to, mm-hmm. her ballet teacher was like 
good friends with her because she had been taking classes for a while. Right. But her mom had an accident that caused her to not be able to go to work for a while. So Robin's ballet class actually wasn't until five, even though she said it was at four. The reason why she said it was at four was because she was actually volunteering to like work for her ballet teacher to pay for her ballet classes. Oh. Because her mom couldn't work. That's that's so like her mom and her ballet teacher both were like she would never miss a class just because she didn't want to come to class. She right. a loved it and b knew that she had to be here to like help help yeah to so that she could afford to keep going to ballet and like that's how much she loved it that she was willing to do that. I'm just, I'm to Robin's family. I am so sorry that you went through yeah. that. And I can't imagine what they feel towards Dana. And there, like, there would be no forgiveness for Dana. Well, and here's the thing. Later, like, Dana did testify in court and told everyone what she saw. And but so, like, she was, like, a key witness in... It doesn't matter, though. Yeah. It's just... I don't know. At that point, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's just... It's heartbreaking that she didn't say anything. So, um, Rodney Alcala was arrested on July 24th, and police searched his home, his vehicle, and his storage locker, which we will definitely get into his storage locker Oh, later. the storage locker. Yeah. But during trial, three different girls testified to being approached by Alcala the day before and the day of Robin's disappearance, stating that he was asking to take pictures of them for a bikini contest, and even offering to take them on a ride in his car and offering to uh, get them high. Uh, he eventually even tried to get some of their phone numbers as well. <laughs> nah. Yeah, The girls actually notified police of this when they saw Alcala's picture come up on the news. So Jackie Young, if you remember the adult friend of Bridget that yep. came up to Robin and Bridget on the day that she went missing. Yep. So Jackie and Bridget both testified during Alcala's case and positively identified Alcala as the man that took the pictures of Bridget and Robin that day. Good. Yeah. So like they definitely know that it was him. According to testimonies by two different inmates who were locked up with Alcala during his trial, Rodney said that he got Robin into his car by offering to pay her to take photos for a magazine. Once she got in, he locked her door. Alcala had asked Robin if she ever posed nude for pictures before. At that, Robin started to cry, and so Alcala started, quote, slapping the shit out of her. And then... The inmate said that Robin, quote, became unconscious, which is in huge quotations because I honestly think that he had already probably killed her at this point. Um, and Alcala was overheard saying that he decided to just leave her where she was. He denied ever stabbing or shooting Robin, though. So you just beat her to death. Yeah, he just slapped the shit out of her until she was dead, I guess. In 1980, Alcala was convicted and sentenced to death for the murder of Robin Samso, but his conviction was overturned by the California Supreme Court because the Orange County Superior Court trial judge improperly allowed the jury to hear about the Tali Shapiro case and Alcala's other rape and kidnapping convictions. But that should have played a huge part in it, though. Right. Especially Tali's. Right, but the way that the judge allowed... Mm -hmm. The jury to hear about those previous convictions is against the rules, <laughs> I guess. It was like, it, it was basically the improper way to notify the jury about his previous convictions. And so because of that, his, um, his death sentence was overturned. In 1986, Alcala was tried again and was again sentenced to death, but the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel overthrew his conviction once again partly because there was a witness that wasn't allowed to support Alcala's argument that the park ranger that found Samso's body was, quote, hypnotized by police investigators. So there was actually a witness what? who... Yeah, there was a witness <laughs> okay. who wanted to actually corroborate Alcala's argument that the ranger that found Samso's body was hypnotized and she wasn't allowed to testify and so the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel overturned his death sentence again for the second oh time. Oh my god. Yeah. So while he was in custody during the 1986 trial Alcala wrote a book and it is entitled You the Jury 
And this book basically just goes into detail claiming his innocence for Samso's murder. Ooh, I want to read this. I know. I really want to read this book, honestly. Should, should we go find this book? Let's I'll find it. it. Yeah, okay, we'll buy it. it. That's fine. <laughs> so, Alcala wasn't actually tried again until 2009. Before this trial took place, though, advances in DNA testing and other crime scene analysis tied Alcala to multiple other crimes. So, at his trial in 2009, Alcala was charged for the third time for the murder of Robin Samso. Part of the case against Alcala that tied him to Robin's murder was that when investigators searched that storage locker that we were talking about, yep. uh, they actually found a pair of Robin's earrings in his storage locker. And this, if I remember correctly, Danny, this storage locker was actually up in Portland, Oregon. Or Washington. Yes, it was in Washington. It was in Washington, yeah. yep. And it's funny because after Rodney, a lot, and this is, I guess, a joke among investigators now that do a lot of these crimes or, you know, um, research them. They're like, well, if you, if there's not a, a storage locker within, you know, where they live, go look in Washington. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> That's because funny. they've actually found numerous storage lockers belonging to serial killers m- not or just cr- serial criminals, cr- yeah. criminals in Washington. That's so bizarre. It's like Washington is the hub, the hub of storing criminals, crap. Yeah, criminal storage lockers. That's insane. Um, so yeah, I, they found a pair of Robin's earrings in that storage locker that like further tied him to her murder. Um, so along with the murder of Robin Samso, Alcala faced charges for the rape and murder of four other women in California in the late 1970s. Mm-hmm. Jill Barkham, who was only 18 years old and just moved to California from her home state of New York, yep. was murdered in November of 1977. Alcala raped and sodomized her, bludgeoned her with a rock, and then strangled her to death by tying a belt and a pant leg around her neck. Alcala then left her body in a mountainous area near Hollywood. He posed her on her knees with her face in the dirt. Until 2005, when advancements in crime scene analysis came along, Jill was actually thought to be a victim of the Hillside Strangler. Oh, I can see that, yeah. So that's the other little thing I was telling you about. It's interesting that he was like writing for the LA Times yeah. while, like, while they were covering the Hillside Strangler, and one of his victims was actually thought to be a the victim. victim of the Hillside Strangler. Right. Yeah. That, that is interesting. Yeah, I thought that was like an interesting little tidbit, so... Georgia Wixted, who was a 27-year-old nurse, was found murdered in December of 1978. She was raped and sodomized by Alcala before he proceeded to sexually assault her with a hammer. He then bashed her head in with the claw end of the hammer and strangled her with a pair of nylon stockings. He left her body posed in her Malibu apartment. Another earring that was found in the storage locker tied Alcala to the murder of 32-year-old Charlotte Lamb. Charlotte was murdered in June of 1978. She had been sexually assaulted, strangled to death with a shoelace, and then shoved into the laundry room of an apartment complex. What? Yeah. That one's rough. The, all, all, all of these are rough. but All of these seem to be pretty rough. Yeah. But... Yeah. The, the one, Georgia, really, I mean, that one hurts me. That, that, that I mean, okay, speaking from a woman's perspective... Imagine being sexually assaulted with a freaking hammer, okay? Or, you know, don't ever imagine that. I couldn't help it for like three seconds. Just not, let's just not. Well, and then like bashing her face in with the claw end of the hammer that he just assaulted her with. Like, just absolutely, absolutely no remorse (laughs) at all. I mean, I really just, I'm sickened by Rodney now. Yeah. But I'm still fascinated. Yeah, he's... Not, not because of what he did, but because of why he did it. Like, I want to find out why. Yeah. I mean, he... Like I said, he showed signs of psychopathy, sexual sadism. Oh, like, there was a lot going on in his head that caused him to do a lot of the things he did. I oh, believe. I get that, but it's been a while. So, Rodney, let's... Let's you and me sit down and chat. Yeah. L- let's chat, boy. Let's see what's going on in that head of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It's... It's interesting, but it's also heartbreaking. It's very heartbreaking. And 
I, I tend to say this a lot in every episode, but I'm going to say this. Condolences to the families out there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we have a few more victims to mention because I want to make sure that every single victim that we know about gets mentioned because they their names deserve to be heard, not Rodney's. Absolutely. Every single one of those victims out there. And if guys, if you have heard of the Rodney Akalakis and you happen to say, hey, you guys didn't you know pick up on this, then let us know. Yeah, let us know if we missed anything, if you have first or secondhand knowledge of anything but um so in early june of 1979 which was actually only days before robin samso went missing 21 year old jill parento was murdered alcala had broken into her home raped her and murdered her so now at his 2009 trial alcala was being accused of five brutal rapes and murders and what does he do he pulls a Bundy. He defends himself. Yep, he pulls a Bundy. He decides to represent himself. And at one point, he even took the stand and questioned himself in third person. I remember that. Changing the tone of his voice during the time that he was questioning himself, like depending on if he was acting as his lawyer or himself, he changed the tone of his voice. I remember hearing, yep, I, that was one thing that I was like, oh... At least Bundy didn't do that. Yeah. So, but, but absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Let, let's see. Every person that has, every criminal that we know of that has decided to defend themselves, how well has that worked out for them? Yeah. So, Alcala was found guilty for the third time <laughs> <laughs> after having, so get this too. He had no defense for himself at all for the four added murders. He only even tried to defend himself for the Sam So murder, but he literally had no defense for himself for the murders of Jill Barkham, Georgia Wickstead, Charlotte Lamb, and Jill Parento. So he's Nothing. like, so basically he's like, oh, oh, I didn't murder Robin, but yeah, the other three or four, the I other murdered. four, I just, you know, I, I don't have any defense for that. And his his defense for murdering Robin was, I was quote at Knott's Berry Farm, and he just kept saying that over and over. Boy, you were not at Knott's Berry Farm, all right? Yeah. Let me tell you, um, Knott's Berry Farm, I would have picked a much better theme park. I'd be like, I was at Disneyland. Yeah, I just, I I don't know. So I, I was somewhere else. I mean, why did you pick Knott's Berry Farm? I have no idea. But months later, a few months later, in March of 2010, Alcala was sentenced to death for the third time. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> So, in 2012, two years after this sentencing, Alcala admitted to the murders of Cornelia Crilly and Ellen Hover. Alcala had sexually assaulted Cornelia and then strangled her with a stocking inside of her New York apartment on June 12, 1971. Alcala was indicted for her murder in 2011 after a bite mark on Cornelia's body matched Alcala. You bit her. Again, very similar to Bundy. Yeah. 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 So. Did, did you and Ted Bundy, like, meet up with each other, yo? Yeah, because Bundy was killing around the same time Alcala was. Yeah, he was. And, oh, this is the other note I wanted to mention, too, real quickly, before we get into Ellen. Um, the dating game, when he went on the show, mm -hmm. he had already committed his first murder before he oh, went on there. yep, I know they that. They just didn't know about it yet. No. And so, not only was he already a convicted rapist and registered sex offender, but he had already murdered people. Nope. So, I don't know how he got on a TV show, but that's not... Because it was the here. 70s. Yeah. I mean... So I, I just don't get it. So, Ellen Hover. She was the daughter of a wealthy nightclub owner who went missing from her New York apartment on July 16, 1977. There was a note in Ellen's diary that said that she was supposed to meet up with a photographer named John Berger. Alcala was questioned by the police in December of 1977, mm -hmm. but was released due to lack of evidence. One year later, Ellen's body would be discovered in a shallow grave in the Rockefeller Estate in Mount Pleasant, New York. The autopsy report ruled her death a homicide, and Alcala was known for bringing females to this area for his photography sessions. And Alcala was eventually indicted for this murder as well in 2011 due to advancements in the crime scene procedures. After pleading guilty to these two murders, Alcala received an additional 25 years to life in prison on top of his death sentence. 
although he will only actually serve that time if California ever decides to release him from custody. That's... That's so not going to happen, though. He's not, he's not going to serve any time for that murder. Because he's already in his 70s, maybe 80s, yeah. I want to say. No, he's 77 right now. Okay. But, yeah, no, he's definitely like he's definitely not going to serve any time for that. There's actually other stuff, too, that we're going to get into that he's not going to serve time for. Let's so, keep going, then. <laughs> during the search at Alcala's storage locker, police discovered thousands of pictures. And in 2013, authorities released a handful of these photos, and the sister of Christine Thornton identified Christine as one of the women photographed. Yep. Christine had gone missing in 1977, but her remains weren't discovered until 1982, five years later. Yep. Close to where the photo of her was taken by Rodney Alcala. Because of her sister positively identifying her in the picture, they were able to do some further DNA tests on her remains and were able to link her to Alcala. But due to ill health, Alcala has not been extradited to Wyoming to stand trial for Christine's murder. He did, however, admit to taking the photo of her, but he denies having anything to do with her murder, even though they found his DNA on her remains. Um, yeah, did you know Christine was pregnant too? No, that was actually not disclosed. Yeah. Wow. Christine was pregnant. Um, and when investigators found her body five years later. Right. Um, they found the uh, remains of the baby. That's heartbreaking. So according to investigators, when Rodney Acala murdered her, <sighs> she was about three to four months pregnant with the baby. That's horrible. I can't imagine. And the only reason... That Christine wound up in that situation. Uh huh. Um, I guess Christine and her boyfriend were traveling to Wyoming to go panning for gold. Um, and along the way, Christine and her boyfriend got into a huge fight, and her boyfriend basically told her to get the fuck out of the truck and left her there. And then Rodney Alcala found her. Yes, sir. Rodney Alcala found her. I hope that boyfriend lives with a life full of regret. Oh, I'm sure he does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so but yeah, actually, that, that's a little side note. I didn't know if you had found yeah, that out. I didn't, actually. And I read a ton of articles, so I don't know how you found that out. But Documentary. <laughs> that's fair enough. Um, I like to read more than I like to watch when I'm studying cases. So. You know, I like to do both just because I think you can read a lot of stuff. Right. But then there's stuff that, you know, when you watch documentaries, people are going to talk about that. Yeah, like family members and friends are going to testify and bring up stuff in documentaries that don't always get written down so yeah that's what i'd like to do fair enough um so there's actually a few more crimes that i want to mention they don't have concrete proof of being committed by alcala but investigators really strongly believe that these are tied to him so i wanted to mention them anyway all right so pamela lamson disappeared after she reportedly planned on meeting a photographer Her nude body was discovered on a hiking trail, and she had been beaten and strangled. Due to the nature of the killing, police strongly believe that Alcala committed this murder, but due to a lack of physical evidence and the fact that the DNA collected from the scene was too degraded to test, Alcala was never charged for this one. Okay. Rodney Alcala was also linked to the murder of Antoinette Whitaker, who was last seen leaving her house with a man who matched the appearance of Alcala on July 7th, 1977, which was when he was very actively murdering people. Uh, Her body was discovered in a vacant lot, and she had been stabbed to death and posed, but she was fully clothed. Alcala was never charged for this, despite investigators believing that he may have been involved. I mean, if he's not going to admit to it, then... Yeah, which, I mean, he still might. He's still alive, so we'll see, but... Deathbed confessions. Maybe, yeah. So, the body of Joyce Grant was discovered in a picnic area on the 17th of February, 1978. She was raped, beaten, and strangled to death. Because of the nature of the crime and the fact that the body was posed, it's believed that this crime was committed by Rodney Alcala. And one other suspected victim of Rodney Alcala's is Cherry Greenman, who had been missing since 1976, and they have still never found her, but she is thought to be one of Alcala's victims because of how closely she resembles one of the girls that was in the photos found in Alcala's storage locker. Oh, okay. 
So Alcala's total number of victims is unknown, and some authorities believe that he murdered around 50 people, but others think it could be as many as 130. Damn. Yeah, that's a lot. Alcala has been behind bars since his arrest in 1979 for Robin Samso's murder, even during the overturns of his death sentence and his multiple trials. He was not set a foot on Freeland since 1979. I'm guessing the parole board finally learned their lesson. <laughs> yeah, seems like it. Um, so while he was in prison, Alcala has filed two lawsuits against the California penal system what? For, <laughs> for a slip and fall claim. As well as failing to provide him with a low-fat diet. To which I say, cry me a fucking river, asshole. Okay, here- Literally, go fuck yourself. Here's the thing. Slip and fall. We're just slip. We're just- I just- just, He's just being a little bitch, honestly. And and a low-fat diet, unless- I'm gonna have to ask my husband about this, because he can tell me if this is something they have to do or not. Right, like- Maybe if it's, like, for religious purposes, like, stuff like that, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, if it's, like, for, um... Like, if you If it's for, like, Ramadan... Ramadan, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, something like that. That's what I was... Because exactly what I was thinking. with Ramadan, they, you know, it's been a practice for so long that... Right, that's, um, like, how you live. That, so. That's how they live. And honestly, guys, the corrections officers, they do abide by that. They're not gonna sit there and be like, no, you can't do that. Right, but come on. Rodney Alcala was born in Texas, and, like... <laughs> He's just asking for a low-fat diet. Like, come on, dude. Dude, seriously, it's no wonder you... To the you... point of filing a lawsuit against the California penal system. It's no wonder you look like shit right now. Seriously, come on, dude. Um, so, Alcala is now 77 years old, and he looks way older than that. He looks terrible, honestly. I mean, he looks terrible. He doesn't look... I I guess I haven't seen... I've yeah, seen look up pic- pictures of him. I he will. looks rough. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he does, because, yeah. you know... Uh, but he still maintains his innocence to this day and is actually currently sitting on death row in San Quentin State Prison in California. He's not going to get off of death row. He's not even going to... I don't know. I guess he could at some point if they decide... Oof! Yeah, sorry guys. I just pulled up a picture of Rodney Alcala and what he looks like now. He looks really rough. I mean, th- there's actually one that he his hair is completely like... He no longer has his long hair. Yeah. Like that one? Yeah, that one. That was way back when he was arrested. Look at that stash, though, bro. This is not good for podcasts. Nobody can see what we're seeing. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to tell you this, guys. That stash. Yeah, we will post pictures of him from oh, yeah. uh, multiple different pictures of him. Chris will get him up on the Facebook and stuff. But And you guys can tell me, oof. Yeah, there's there's some pictures of him like when he got arrested when he has like short hair and this like fat mustache and like he actually doesn't look that bad but like seeing him now at 77 years old he looks fucking rough he does he looks really rough honestly so but that's that's Rodney Alcala that's the dating game killer what'd you guys think I think he is a piece of shit who has done a lot of unspeakable things to very poor victims yeah Yeah, just like (laughs) you can't even find the words i can't i can't find the words to justify like the way that these girls should be honored but i mean i just i don't want to i don't like i don't want to give any attention to rodney but i don't either i kind of just want to and i that's why i feel like when we do this podcast i try to focus so much on the victims because they are who matter not the killer himself. Like he, Rodney can die, literally. Like he's sitting in jail waiting to die, and that's the existence that he deserves. I mean, I tend to give you guys a little bit more information about, I guess, just so you guys can see kind of the background about these guys. Yeah, and, then and the I victims. try to do that all the time too. But I just, I, I, I feel like Danny is, you know, me and Danny, we always try and, you know. Make it more about the victims, and yeah, so you guys I think it's more see. important to focus on them because, like, who gives a fuck about the guy who killed them? I mean, a lot of people do. Yeah. The well, media, I mean, like, yeah. the court systems. And we need to give a fuck about them to the degree of stopping them from doing oh, what they absolutely. have done and stuff like that. But I just, I want to also focus on the fact that these victims suffered a fate that is not at all what they deserved. Um. So to you guys out there, the ones that hopefully survived Rodney Alcala. Yeah. Like um, like uh, Monique Hoyt and Tali Shapiro. Tali, yep. Um, I hope that you guys were able to get help that you so deserved. 
And Tali's actually a bad bitch because in his third trial, she was a surprise witness and actually Oh testified. shit, she finally came. She was like, I am not letting you get out. No, she was a surprise witness and testified in that third and final trial that actually got him. So I, like, I think that she actually sat down for one of the documentaries about him. Yeah, Tali's and, a fucking superhero. And she was like... I had, I think she even said I had to play, pretend to play dead because I knew that he, I mean, something along those lines. I don't want to misquote her. Right. Um, well, and th- similar things were said about Monique. Because remember how I was saying it's kind of back and forth on whether or not she was yeah, yeah. consensual, at least yep. in the beginning or not. I've seen things that have said that she played along with it so that she could try to survive her, right. the encounter with him, basically. So to you survivors out there, um, like I said, I hope you got the help you deserved and that you guys can live know, a successful and fulfilled life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys deserve every good thing that ever comes your way after going through that hell. Absolutely. And y'all are fucking all of you guys are bad bitches for surviving a dickhead like that. So. And to the victims that didn't survive. Yeah. To your families um, and stuff. We're sorry. We are so sorry. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but that is. The that's key. Rodney Alcala. Yep. Yeah, so, guys, get your guesses in, because we're going... Back to, to California? Going back to California, yeah. <laughs> we're taking a short... We're going to fly home, you know, get, do some laundry, get some more snacks, and we're flying right back to California. So. I mean, there's just so many serial killers that happen out in California. So many, yeah. Um, That we're just like, let's just hit them all, one, two, three. Right, so you know where to find us. Gmail, serialknowledgepod at gmail.com, facebook.com slash serialknowledgepod. Send us your guesses, interact with us online, and we'll see you next week, guys. We will see you next week. Peace out. Peace. Bye.